Thirteen. Ransom. Wait. Something happened before that. I don't mean to get things so mixed up. I'm sorry. It's just hard to think. It was the morning after I found the silver apricot stone. Three days before, wasn't it? Before I went to Varane, yes. I got up that morning and readied myself for the salon and found a servant waiting for me when I opened the door. Message for you, lady, he said, looking immensely relieved. I had no idea how long he'd been standing out there. Servants in Skye knocked only when the matter was urgent. Yes? Lord Dakarta isn't feeling well, he said. He will not be joining you for today's consortium session, should you choose to attend. Tavril had intimated that Dakarta's health played a factor in his attendance at the sessions, though I was surprised to hear it now. He had seemed fine the day before. And I was surprised he'd bothered to send word. But I hadn't missed that last bit. A subtle reprimand for my skipping the session the day before. Suppressing annoyance, I said, Thank you. Please convey my wishes for a swift recovery back to him. Yes, lady. The servant bowed and left. So I went to the High Bloods Gate and transferred myself down to the salon. As I had expected, Rilad was not there. As I had feared, Samina was. Once again, she smiled at me, and I merely nodded back. And then we sat beside each other, silent for the next two hours. The session was shorter than usual that day because there was only a single item on the agenda. The annexation of the small island nation Eert by a larger kingdom called Uther. The Archerine, former ruler of Eert, a stocky, red-haired man who reminded me vaguely of Tyrrell, had come to lodge a protest. The king of Uther, apparently unconcerned about this challenge to his authority, had sent only a proxy on his behalf a boy who looked not much older than Sia, also red-haired. Both the Irti and the Uthra were offshoots of the Ken race, a fact that apparently had done nothing to foster genial relations between them. The core of the Archerine's appeal was that Uther had filed no petition to begin a war. Bright Tempest detested the chaos of war, so the Aramari controlled it strictly. The lack of a petition meant the Irti had had no warning of their neighbor's aggressive intent, no time to arm, and no right to defend themselves in any way that would have caused deaths. Without the petition, any enemy soldiers killed would be treated as murders and prosecuted as such by the law-keeping arm of the Atempan Order. Of course, the Uthre could not legally kill either. And they hadn't. They had simply marched into the Irtin capital in overwhelming numbers, literally forced its defenders to their knees, and booted the Archerine out into the street. My heart went out to the Irti, though it was clear to me they had no hope of succeeding in their appeal. The Uthre boy defended his people's aggression simply. They weren't strong enough to hold their land against us. We have it now. It's better that a strong ruler hold power here than a weak one, isn't it? And that was what the whole matter boiled down to. What was right mattered far less than what was orderly, and the Uthre had proven their ability to keep things orderly by the simple fact that they'd taken Eert without shedding a drop of blood. That was how the Aramari would see it, and the Order too, and I could not imagine the nobles' consortium daring to disagree. In the end, to no one's surprise, they did not. The Eert appeal was rejected. No one even proposed sanctions against Uther. They would keep what they had stolen— because making them give it back was too messy. 
I could not help frowning as the final vote was read. Samina, glancing over at me, let out a soft, amused snort that reminded me of where I was. Quickly, I schooled my expression back to blankness. When the session ended and she and I descended the steps, I kept my eyes forward so that I would not have to look at her, and I turned toward the bathroom so I would not have to travel back to Sky with her. But she said, "Cousin," and at that point. I had no choice but to stop and see what in the unknown demon's name she wanted. When you've had time to settle in back at the palace, would you be interested in having lunch with me? She smiled. We could get to know each other better. If you don't mind, I said carefully. No. She laughed beautifully. <laughs> I see what Verain meant about you. Well then, if you won't come out of courtesy. Perhaps curiosity will draw you. I have news of your homeland, cousin, that I think will interest you greatly. She turned and began walking toward the gate. I'll see you in an hour. What news? I called after her, but she did not stop or turn back. My fists were still clenched by the time I got to the bathroom, which was why I reacted badly to the sight of Razonchi sitting in one of the parlor's plush chairs. I stopped. My hand reaching automatically for a knife that was not in its usual place on my back, I'd chosen to strap it to my calf under my full skirt since it was not the Aramary way to go armed in public. Have you learned yet what an Aramary should know? She asked before I could recover. I paused, then pushed the bathroom's door firmly closed. Not yet, Auntie. I said at last, though I'm not likely to since I'm not truly Aramary. Perhaps you could tell me and stop riddling about. She smiled. So very dare you are, impatient and sharp-tongued. Your father must have been proud. I flushed, confused, because that had sounded suspiciously like a compliment. Was this her way of letting me know that she was on my side? She wore an ephah symbol around her neck. Not really, I said slowly. My father was a patient, cool-headed man. My temper comes from my mother. Ah, it must serve you well then in your new home. It serves me well everywhere. Now, will you please tell me what this is about? She sighed, her smile fading. Yes, there isn't much time. Forgive me, lady. With an effort that made her knees crack, I winced in sympathy. She pushed herself up out of the chair. I wondered how long she'd been sitting there. Did she wait for me after every session? Again, I regretted skipping the previous day. Do you wonder why Uther didn't file a war petition? She asked. I imagine because they didn't need to. I said, wondering what this had to do with anything. It's nearly impossible to get a petition approved. The Aramary haven't allowed a war in a hundred years or more. So the Uthra gambled on being able to conquer Irt without bloodshed, and fortunately they were successful. Yes. Ross grimaced. There will be more of these annexations, I imagine, now that the Uthra have shown the world how to do it. Peace above all. This is the way of the bride. I marvelled at the bitterness in her tone. If a priest had heard her, she'd have been arrested for heresy. If any other Aramary had heard her, I shuddered, imagining her skinny frame walking onto the pier with Jacquard's spear at her back. Careful, Auntie," I said softly. "You won't live to a ripe old age saying such things out loud." 
Roz laughed softly. <laughs> True enough, I'll be more careful, she sobered. But think of this, Lady Not Era Mary. Maybe the Uthra didn't bother to petition because they knew another petition had already been approved. Widely mingled in with other edicts the consortium has passed in the past few months. I froze, frowning. Another petition? She nodded. As you said, there hasn't been a successful petition for a century, so of course two petitions would never be approved back to back. And perhaps the Uthra even knew that other petition was more likely to pass, since it served the purposes of someone with a great deal of power. Some wars, after all, are useless without death. I stared at her, too thrown to hide my confusion or shock. An approved war petition should have been the talk of the entire nobility. It should have taken the consortium weeks to discuss it, much less approve it. How could anyone get a petition through without half the world hearing of it? Who? I asked, but I was already beginning to suspect. No one knows the petition sponsor, lady, and no one knows what lands are involved either as invader or target. But Uther borders Tima on its eastern side. Uther is small, bigger now, but their ruling family and the Tima Triadis have links of marriage and friendship going back generations. And Tima, I realized with a belated chill, was one of the nations beholden to Samina. Samina, then, had sponsored the war petition, and she had kept its approval quiet, though that had probably required a masterwork of political maneuvering. Perhaps helping Uthra conquer Eert had been part of that. But that left two very crucial questions. Why had she done it? And what kingdom would soon fall victim to the attack? Rilad's warning. If you love anyone, anything, beware. My mouth and hands went dry. I now wanted very badly to go and see Samina. Thank you for this, I said to Roz, my voice higher than usual. My mind was already elsewhere, racing. I'll make good use of the information. She nodded and then hobbled her way out, patting my arm and passing. I was too lost in thought to say goodbye, but then I recalled myself and turned, just as she opened the door to leave. What is it that an Aramary should know, Auntie? I asked. It was something I had wondered since our first meeting. She paused glanced back at me. How to be cruel, she said very softly. How to spin life like currency and wield death itself as a weapon. She lowered her eyes. Your mother told me that once. I've never forgotten it. I stared at her, dry-mouthed. Ra's Onchi bowed to me respectfully. I will pray, she said, that you never learn this for yourself. Back in Sky, I had regained most of my composure by the time I went in search of Samina's apartment. Her quarters were not far from my own, as all full bloods in Sky are housed on the topmost level of the palace. She had gone one step further and claimed one of Sky's greater spires as her domain, which meant that the lifts did me no good. With a passing servant's aid, I found the carpeted stairs leading up the spire. The stairway was not a great height, perhaps three stories, but my thighs were burning by the time I reached the landing, and I wondered why she'd chosen to live in such a place. 
the fitter highbloods would have no trouble and the servants had no choice. But I could not imagine someone as infirm as, say, Descartes making the climb. Perhaps that was the idea. The door swung open at my knock. Inside, I found myself in a vaulted corridor, lined on either side by statues, windows, and vases of some sort of flowering plant. The statues were of no one I recognized, beautiful young men and women, naked and in artful poses. At the end, the corridor opened out into a circular chamber that was furnished with cushions and low tables, no chairs. Samina's guests were clearly meant to either stand or sit on the floor. At the center of the circular room, a couch sat on an elevated dais. I wondered whether it was intentional on Samina's part that this place felt so much like a throne room. Samina was not present, though I could see another corridor just beyond the dais, ostensibly leading into the apartment's more private chambers. Assuming she meant to keep me waiting, I sighed and settled myself, looking around. That was when I noticed the man. He sat with his back propped against one of the room's wide windows. His posture, not so much casual as insolent, with one leg drawn up and his head lolling to the side. It took me a moment to realize he was naked, because his hair was very long and draped over his shoulder, covering most of his torso. It took me another moment to understand, with a jarring chill, that this was Nahadov. Or at least I thought it was him. His face was beautiful as usual, but strange somehow. And I realized, for the first time, that it was still just one face, one set of features, and not the endlessly shifting melange I usually saw. His eyes were brown, and not the yawning pits of black I recalled. His skin was pale, but it was a human pallor, not that of an almond, and not the glow of moonshine or starlight. He watched me lazily, unmoving except to blink, a faint smile curving his lips that were just a shade too thin for my taste. Hello, he said. It's been a while. I had just seen him the night before. Good morning, Lord Nahadoth. I said, using politeness to cover my unease. Are you well? He shifted a little, just enough for me to see the thin silver collar round his neck and the chain that dangled from it. Abruptly, I understood. By day I am human, Nahadoth had said. No power save Etempus himself could chain the Night Lord at night, but by day he was weak and different. I searched his face but saw none of the madness that had been there my first night in sky. What I saw instead was calculation. I am very well, he said. He touched his tongue to his lips, which made me think of a snake testing the air. Spending the afternoon with Samina is usually enjoyable, though I do grow bored so easily. He paused just for a breath. Variety helps. There was no doubt as to what he meant not with his eyes stripping my clothing as I stood there. I think he meant for his words to unnerve me, but instead, strangely, they cleared my thoughts. Why does she chain you? I asked. To remind you of your weakness? His eyebrows rose a touch. There was no true surprise in his expression, just a momentary heightening of interest. Does it bother you? No. But I saw at once by the sharpening of his eyes that he knew I was lying. He sat forward, the chain making the faintest of sounds, like distant chimes. His eyes, human and hungry and so very, very cruel, stripped me anew, 
though not sexually this time. You're not in love with him, he said, thoughtful. You're not that stupid, but you want him. I did not like this, but I had no intention of admitting it. There was something in this Nahadoth that reminded me of a bully, and one did not show weakness before that. While I considered my response, however, his smile widened. You can have me, he said. I worried, for the briefest of instants, that I would find that thought tempting. But I needn't have worried. All I felt was revulsion. Thank you, but no. He ducked his eyes in a parody of polite embarrassment. I understand. I'm just the human shell, and you want something more. I don't blame you, but... And here, he glanced up at me through his lashes. Never mind bully. What lurked in his face was evil, pure and plain. Here was the sadistic glee that had gloried in my terror that first night. All the more disturbing because this time it was sane. This version of Nahadoth gave truth to the priest's warning tales and children's fears of the dark. And I did not like being alone in the room with him, not one bit. You do realize, he drawled, that you can never have him, not that way. Your weak mortal mind and flesh would shatter like eggshells under the onslaught of his power. There wouldn't be enough left of you to send home to Dar. I folded my arms and gazed pointedly at the corridor beyond Samina's couch throne. If she kept me waiting much longer, I was going to leave. Me, though. Abruptly, he was on his feet and across the room and entirely too close. Startled, I lost my pose of indifference and tried to face him and stumble back all at once. I was too slow. He caught me by the arms. I had not realized until then how very big he was taller than me by more than a head, and well-muscled. In his night form, I barely noticed his body. Now I was very, very aware of it, and all the danger that it posed. He demonstrated this by spinning me around and pinning me again from behind. At this I struggled, but his fingers tightened on my arms until I cried out, my eyes watering from the pain. When I stopped struggling, his grip eased, I can give you a taste of him, he whispered in my ear. His breath was hot on my neck. All over my body, my skin crawled. I could ride you all day. Let go of me right now. I gritted the command through my teeth and prayed it would work. His hands released me, but he did not move away. I danced away instead and hated myself forward when I turned to face his smile. It was cold, that smile which made the whole situation somehow worse. He wanted me. I could see that plainly enough now, but sex was the least of it. My fear and disgust pleased him, as had my pain when he bruised my arms. And worst of all, I saw him relish the moment when I realized he had not lied. I had forgotten. Night was the time not just of seducers, but rapists. Not just passion, but violence. This creature was my taste of the night, Lord. Bright Etempus help me if I were ever insane enough to want more. Nah-huh? Samina's voice made me jump and spin. She stood beside the couch, one hand on her hip, smiling at me. How long had she been there watching? You're being rude to my guests. I'm sorry, cousin, 
I should have shortened his leash. I was feeling anything but gracious. I haven't the patience for these games, Samina, I snapped. Too angry and, yes, frightened to be tactful. State your business and let's be done. Samina lifted an eyebrow, amused by my rudeness. She smiled over at Nahadol. No. Naha, I decided. The god's name did not fit this creature. He went to stand beside her, his back to me. She grazed the knuckles of one hand along his nearer arm and smiled. Made your heart race a bit, did he? Our Naha can have that effect on the inexperienced. You're welcome to borrow him, by the way. As you've seen, he's nothing if not exciting. I ignored this, but I did not miss the way Naha looked at her, beyond her line of sight. She was a fool to take that thing into her bed, and I was a fool to keep standing there. Good day, Samina. I thought you might be interested in a rumor I heard, Samina said to my back. It concerned your homeland. I paused, Ra's Anchi's warning suddenly ringing in my mind. Your promotion has won your land new enemies, cousin. Some of Dar's neighbors find you more threatening than even Rilad or I. I suppose that's understandable. We were born to this and have no antiquated ethnic loyalties. I turned back slowly. You are Amun. But Amun's superiority is accepted the world over. There is nothing surprising about us. You, however, are from a race that has never been more than savages, no matter how prettily we dress you. I could not ask her outright about the war petition, but perhaps. What are you saying? That someone may attack Dar simply because I've been claimed by the Aramary? No. I'm saying someone may attack Dar because you still think like a Darin, though now you have access to Aramary power. My order to assigned nations, I realized. So that was the excuse she meant to use. I had forced them to resume trade with Dar. Of course it would be seen as favoritism, and those who saw it as such would be completely right. How could I not help my people with my new power and wealth? What kind of woman would I be if I thought only of myself? An Aramary woman whispered a little ugly voice in the back of my mind. Naha had moved to embrace Samina from behind, the picture of an amorous lover. Samina absently stroked his arms while he gazed murder at the back of her head. Don't feel bad, cousin, Samina said. It wouldn't have mattered what you did, really. Some people would have always hated you simply because you don't fit their image of a ruler. It's a shame you didn't take after Kenneth, other than those eyes of yours. She closed her eyes, leaning back against Naha's body, the picture of contentment. Of course. The fact that you are Dare doesn't help. You went through their warrior initiation, yes? Since your mother wasn't Dare, who sponsored you? My grandmother, I answered quietly. It did not surprise me that Samina knew that much of the Dare's customs. Anyone could learn that by opening a book. Samina sighed and glanced back at Naha. To my surprise, he did not change his expression, and to my greater surprise, she smiled at the pure hate in his eyes. Do you know what happens at the Dare ceremony? She asked him conversationally. They were quite the warriors once, and matriarchal. We forced them to stop conquering their neighbors and treating their men like chattel. But like most of these darkling races, 
They cling to their little traditions in secret. I know what they once did, Naha said. Capture a youth of an enemy tribe, circumcise him, nurse him back to health, then use him for pleasure. I had schooled my face to blankness. Samina laughed at this, lifting a lock of Naha's hair to her lips while she watched me. Things have changed, she said. Now the Dare aren't permitted to kidnap and mutilate their boys. Now a girl just survives alone in the forest for a month, and then she comes home to be deflowered by some man her sponsor has chosen. <laughs> Still barbaric, and something we stop whenever we hear about it. But it happens, especially among the women of the upper class. And the part they think they've hidden from us is this. The girl must either defeat him in public combat and therefore control the encounter, or be defeated and learn how it feels to submit to an enemy. I would like that, Naha whispered. Samina laughed again, slapping his arm playfully. How predictable. Be silent now. Her eyes slid to me sidelong. The ritual seems the same in principle, does it not? But so much has changed. Now Dare men no longer fear women or respect them. It was a statement, not a question. I knew better than to answer. Really? When you consider it, the earlier ritual was the more civilized. That ritual taught a young warrior not only how to survive, but also how to respect an enemy, how to nurture. Many girls later married their captives, didn't they? So they even learned to love. The ritual now, well, what does it teach you? I cannot help but wonder. It taught me to do whatever was necessary to get what I wanted, you evil bitch. I did not answer, and after a moment Samina sighed. So, she said. There are new alliances being formed on Dar's borders, meant to counter Dar's perceived new strength. Since Dar, in fact, has no new strength, that means the entire region is becoming unstable. Hard to say what will happen under circumstances like that. My fingers itched for a sharpened stone. Is that a threat? Please, cousin. I'm merely passing the information along. We, Aramary, must look out for one another. I appreciate your concern. I turned to leave before my temper slipped any further. But this time, it was Naha's voice that stopped me. Did you win? He asked. At your warrior initiation, did you beat your opponent? Or did he rape you in front of a crowd of spectators? I knew better than to answer. I really did. But I answered anyway. I won, I said, after a fashion. Oh? If I closed my eyes, I would see it. Six years had passed since that night, but the smell of the fire, of old furs and blood, of my own reek after a month living rough, was still vivid in my mind. Most sponsors choose a man who is a poor warrior, I said softly. Easy for a girl barely out of childhood to defeat. But I was to be Enu. And there were doubts about me, because I was half Amun, half Aramari so my grandmother chose the strongest of our male warriors instead. I had not been expected to win. Endurance would have been sufficient to be marked as a warrior. As Samina had guessed, many things had changed for us, but endurance was not sufficient to be Enu. No one would follow me if I let some man use me in public and then crow about it all over town. 
I need it to win. He defeated you, Naha said. He breathed the words hungry for my pain. I looked at him and he blinked. I wonder what he saw in my eyes in that moment. I put on a good show, I said, enough to satisfy the requirements of the ritual. Then I stabbed him in the head with a stone knife I had hidden in my sleeve. The council had been upset about that, especially once it became clear I had not conceived. Bad enough I had killed a man, but to also lose his seed and the strength it might have given future Dari daughters. For a while, victory had made things worse for me. She is no true Dare, went the whispers. There is too much death in her. I had not meant to kill him, truly. But in the end, we were warriors, and those who valued my Aramary murderousness had outnumbered my doubters. They made me Enu two years later. The look on Samina's face was thoughtful, measuring. Naha, however, was sober, his eyes showing some darker emotion that I could not name. If I had to put a word to it, it might have been bitterness. But that was not so surprising, was it? I was not so Dare as, and so much more Aramary than, I seemed. It was something I had always hated about myself. He's begun to wear a single face for you, hasn't he? Naha asked. I knew at once who he was. That's how it starts. His voice grows deeper or his lips fuller. His eyes change their shape. Soon he's something out of your sweetest dreams, saying all the right things touching all the right places. He pressed his face into Samina's hair as if seeking comfort. Then it's only a matter of time. I left, goaded by fear and guilt and a creeping hateful sense that no matter how Aramary I was, it was not enough to help me survive this place. Not Aramary enough by far. That is when I went to Varane, and that is what led me to the library and the secret of my two souls. And that is how I ended up here, dead. 14. The Walking Dead We cured your father, said Sia. That was your mother's price. In exchange, she allowed us to use her unborn child as the vessel for Enifa's soul. I closed my eyes. He took a deep breath in my silence. Our souls are no different from yours. We expected Enifas to travel onward after she died, in the usual manner. But when Etempus, when Etempus killed Enifa, he kept something, a piece of her. It was difficult to catch, but he was rushing his words ever so slightly. Distantly, I considered soothing him. Without that piece, all life in the universe would have died. Everything Enifa created, everything except Nahadoth and Etempus himself. It is the last vestige of her power. Mortals call it the stone of earth. Against my closed eyelids, images formed. A small, ugly lump of bruised dark flesh. An apricot stone. My mother's silver necklace. With the stone still in this world, the soul was trapped here, too. Without a body, it drifted, lost. We only discovered what had happened centuries later. By the time we found it, the soul had been battered, eroded, like a sail left on a mast through a storm. The only way to restore it was to house it again in flesh. He sighed. I will admit the thought of nurturing Enifa's soul in the body of an Aramary child was appealing on many levels. I nodded. That I could certainly understand. 
If we can restore the soul to health, Sia said, then there is a chance that it can be used to free us. The thing that subdues us in this world, trapping us in flesh and binding us to the era Mary, is the stone. E. Tempest took it not to preserve life, but so that he could use Enifa's power against Nahado, two of the three against one. But he could not wield it himself. The three are all too different from one another. Only Enifa's children can use Enifa's power, a godling like me or a mortal. In the war, it was both, some of my siblings and one Etempan priestess. Shahar Aramari, I said. The bed moved slightly with his nod. Jacarn was a silent, watching presence. I drew Jacarn's face with my mind, matching it against the face I'd seen in the library. Jacarn's face was framed like Enifa's, with the same sharp jaw and high cheekbones. It wasn't all three of them, I realized, though they didn't look like siblings or even members of the same race. All of Enifa's children had kept some feature, some tribute to their mother's looks. Kurue had the same frank, dissecting gaze. Sia's eyes were the same jade color, like mine. Shahar Aramari, Sia sighed. As a mortal, she could wield only a fraction of the stone's true power. Yet she was the one who struck the deciding blow. Nahadoth would have avenged Enifa that day, if not for her. Nahadoth says you want my life. Jacan's voice with a hint of irritation. He told you that? Sia's voice equally irritated, though at Jacan. He can only defy his own nature for so long. Is it true? I asked. Sia was silent for so long that I opened my eyes. He winced at the look on my face. I did not care. I was through with evasions and riddles. I was not Enifa. I did not have to love him. Jacarn unfolded her arms, a subtle threat. You haven't agreed to a lie with us. You could give this information to Dakarta. I gave her the same look that I had Sia. Why? I said, enunciating each word carefully. Would I possibly betray you to him? Shakarn's eyes flicked over to Sia. Sia smiled, though there was little humor in it. I told her you say that. You do have one advocate among us, Yena, however little you might believe it. I said nothing. Shakarn was still glaring at me, and I knew better than to look away from a challenge. It was a pointless challenge on both sides. She would have no choice but to tell me if I commanded her, and I would never earn her trust merely by my words. But my whole world had just been shattered, and I knew of no other way to learn what I needed to know. My mother sold me to you, I said mostly to Jacarn. She was desperate, and perhaps I would even make the same choice in her position, but she still did it. And at the moment, I am not feeling well inclined towards any Aramary. You and your kind are gods. It doesn't surprise me that you would play with mortal lives like pieces in a game of Nikim. But I expect better of human beings. You were made in our image, she said coldly, an unpleasantly astute point. There were times to fight and times to retreat. Enifa's soul inside me changed everything. It made the era marry my enemies in a far more fundamental way, because Enifa had been a Tempest's enemy, and they were his servants. 
yet it did not automatically make the Enifara my allies. I was not actually Enifa, after all. Sia sighed to break the silence. You need to eat, he said, and got up. He left my bedroom. I heard the apartment door open and close. I had slept nearly three days. My angry declaration that I would leave had been a bluff. My hands were shaking, and I did not trust my ability to walk far if I tried. I looked down at my unsteady hand and thought sourly that if the Inafada had infected me with a goddess's soul, the least they could have done was give me a stronger body in the process. Sia loves you, said Jacarn. I put my hand on the bed so it would no longer shake. I know. No, you don't. The sharpness in Jacarn's voice made me look up. She was still angry, and I realized now that it had nothing to do with the alliance. She was angry about how I treated Sia. What would you do if you were me? I asked, surrounded by secrets with your life dependent on the answers. I would do as you have done. That surprised me. I would use every possible advantage I had to gain as much information as I could, and I would not apologize for doing so. But I am not the mother Sia has missed for so long. I could already tell that I was going to become very, very sick of being compared to a goddess. Neither am I, I snapped. Sia knows that, and yet he loves you, Jakarn sighed. He is a child. He's older than you, isn't he? Age means nothing to us. What matters is staying true to one's nature. Sia has devoted himself fully to the path of childhood. It is a difficult one. I could imagine, though it made no sense to me. Enifa's soul seemed to bring me no special insight into the tribulations of godhood. What do you want me to do? I asked. I felt weary, though that might have been the hunger. Shall I cuddle him to my breast when he comes back and tell him everything will be all right? Should I do the same for you? You should not hurt him again, she said and vanished. I gazed at the spot where she had stood for a long while. I was still staring at it when Sia returned, setting a platter in front of me. The servants here don't ask questions, he said. Safer that way. So Tavril didn't know you'd been unwell until I showed up and asked for food. He's tearing a strip out of the servants assigned to you right now. The platter held a darn feast. Ma'ash pace and fish rolled in kalena leaves with a side of fire-toasted golden peppers, a shallow boat of sari relish, and thin, crisp, curled slices of meat. In my land, it would have been the heart of a particular species of sloth. This was probably beef. And a true treasure, a whole roasted grand banana. My favorite dessert, though how Tavril had found that out I would never know. I picked up a leaf roll and my hand trembled with more than hunger. Dakarta doesn't mean for you to win the contest, Sia said softly. That isn't why he brought you here. He intends for you to choose between Rilad and Semina. I looked sharply at him and recalled the conversation I'd overheard between Rilad and Semina in the solarium. Was this what Semina had meant? Choose between them? The Aramary Ritual of Succession. To become the next head of the family... One of the heirs must transfer the master sigil, the mark Dakarta wears, from Dakarta's brow to his own, or her own. The master sigil outranks all the rest. Whoever wears it 
has absolute power over us, the rest of the family, and the world. The rest of the family? I frowned. They had hinted at this before, when they altered my own sigil. So that's it. What do the blood sigils really do? Allow Descartes to read our thoughts? Burn our brains out if we refuse to obey? No, nothing so dramatic. There are some protective spells built in for high bloods to guard against assassins and the like. But among the family, they simply compel loyalty. No one who wears a sigil can act against the interests of the family head. If not for measures like that, Semina would have found a way to undermine or kill Dakota long ago. The leaf roll smelled too good. I bit off a piece, making myself chew slowly as I mulled over Sia's words. The fish was strange, some local species, similar to but not the same as the speckled ooey usually used. Still good. I was ravenous, but I knew better than to bolt my food after days without. The stone of earth is used in the succession ritual. Someone, an Aramary, by Etempus's own decree, must wield its power to transfer the master's sigil. An Aramary? Another puzzle piece slipped into place. Anyone in Sky can do this? Everyone down to the lowliest servant? Sia nodded slowly. I noticed he did not blink when he was intent on something. A minor slip. Any Aramary, however distant from the central family, for just one moment, that person becomes one of the three. It was obvious in his wording. That person. For one moment. It would be like striking a match, I imagined having that much power course through mortal flesh. A bright flare, perhaps a few seconds of steady flame, and then... Then that person dies, I said. Sia gave me his unchildlike smile. Yes. Clever. So clever, my Aramary foremothers. By forcing all relatives, however distant, to serve here, they had in place a virtual army of people who could be sacrificed to wield the stone. Even if each used it only for a moment, the Aramary, the Highbloods at least, who would die last, could still approximate the power of a goddess for a considerable time. So Dakarta means for me to be that mortal, I said. Why? The head of this clan must have the strength to kill even loved ones, Sia shrugged. It's easy to sentence a servant to die, but what about a friend, a husband? Rolod and Samina barely knew I was alive before Dakarta brought me here. Why did he choose me? That only he knows. I was growing angry again, but this was a frustrated, directionless sort of anger. I thought the Enifada had all the answers. Of course it wouldn't be that easy. Why in the maelstrom would you use me anyhow? I asked, annoyed. Doesn't that put Enifa's soul too close to the very people who would destroy it if they could? Sia rubbed his nose, abruptly looking abashed. Ah, uh, well, that was my idea. It's always easier to hide something right under a person's nose, you see. And Dakarta's love for Kenneth was well known. We thought that would make you safe. No one expected him to kill her, certainly not after 20 years. All of us were caught off guard by that. I made myself take another bite of the leaf roll, chewing on more than its fragrant wrapping. No one had expected my mother's death. And yet, 
Some part of me, the still grieving, angry part of me, felt they should have known. They should have warned her. They should have prevented it. But listen, Sia leaned forward. The stone is what's left of Enifa's body. Because you possess Enifa's soul, you can wield the stone's power in ways that no one but Enifa herself could do. If you held the stone, Yena, you could change the shape of the universe. You could set us free like that. He snapped his fingers. Then die. Sia lowered his eyes, his enthusiasm fading. That wasn't the original plan, he said. But yes. I finished the leaf roll and looked at the rest of the plate without enthusiasm. My appetite had vanished. But anger, slow-building and fierce, almost as hot as my anger over my mother's murder, was beginning to take its place. You mean for me to lose the contest, too, I said softly. Well, yes. What will you offer me if I accept this alliance? He grew very still. Protection for your land through the war that would follow our release and favor forever after our victory. We keep our vows, Yena. Believe me. I believed him, and the eternal blessing of four gods was indeed a powerful temptation that would guarantee safety and prosperity for Dar if we could get through this time of trial. The Inafata knew my heart well, but then they thought they already knew my soul. I want that and one thing more, I said. I'll do as you wish, Sia, even if it costs me my life. Revenge against my mother's killer is worth that. I'll take up the stone and use it to set you free and die. But not as some humbled, beaten sacrifice, I glared at him. I want to win this contest. His lovely green eyes went wide. Yena, he began. That's impossible. Dakarta and Rala and Samina, they're all against you. You haven't got a chance. You're the instigator of this whole plot, aren't you? Surely the god of mischief can think of a way. Mischief, not politics. You should go and tell the others my terms. I made myself pick up the fork and eat some relish. Sia stared at me, then finally let out a shaky laugh. I don't believe this. You're crazier than Naha. He got to his feet and rubbed a hand over his hair. You gods. He seemed not to notice the strangeness of his oath. I'll talk to them. I inclined my head formally. I shall await your answer. Muttering in his strange language, Sia summoned his yellow ball and left through the bedroom wall. They would accept, of course. Whether I won or lost, they would get the freedom they wanted, unless, of course, I chose not to give it to them so they would do whatever it took to keep me agreeable. Reaching for another leaf roll, I concentrated on chewing slowly so that my ill-used stomach would not rebel. It was important that I recover quickly. I would need my strength in the time to come. Fifteen. Hatred. I see my land below me. It passes underneath as if I am flying. High ridges and misty, tangled valleys. Occasional fields, even rarer towns and cities. Dar is so green. I saw many lands as I traveled across High North and Senum on the way to Sky. And none of them seemed half as green as my beautiful Dar. Now I know why. I slept again. When I awoke, 
Sia still had not returned, and it was night. I did not expect an answer from the Enifada any time soon. I had probably annoyed them by my refusal to trudge obediently to death. If I were them, I would keep me waiting a while. Almost as soon as I woke, there was a knock at the door. When I went to answer, a bony-faced servant boy stood very straight and said, with painful formality, Lady Yena, I bear a message. Rubbing sleep from my eyes, I nodded permission for him to continue, and he said, Your grandsire requests your presence. And suddenly, I was very, very awake. The audience chamber was empty this time, just me and Dakarta. I knelt as I had that first afternoon and laid my knife on the floor as was customary. I did not, to my own surprise, contemplate using it to kill him. Much as I hated him, his blood was not what I wanted. Well, he said from his throne. His voice sounded softer than before, though that may have been a trick of perception on my part. Have you enjoyed your week as an Aramari granddaughter? Had it only been a week? No, grandfather, I said, I have not. He uttered a single laugh. <laughs> but now, perhaps, you understand us better? What do you think? This I had not expected. I looked at him from where I knelt and wondered what he was up to. I think, I said slowly, the same thing that I thought before I came here, that the Aramari are evil. All that has changed is that I now believe most of you are mad as well. He grinned, wide and partially toothless. Kenneth said much the same thing to me once. She included herself, however. I resisted the immediate urge to deny this. Maybe that's why she left. Maybe, if I stay long enough, I'll become as evil and mad as the rest of you. Maybe. There was a curious gentleness in the way he said this that threw me. I could never read his face. Too many lines. Silence rose between us for the next several breaths. It plateaued, stalled, broke. Tell me why you killed my mother, I said. His smile faded. I am not one of the Enifada, granddaughter. You cannot command answers from me. Heat washed through me, followed by cold. I rose slowly to my feet. You loved her. If you had hated her, feared her, that I could have understood. But you loved her. He nodded. I loved her. She was crying when she died. We had to wet her eyelids to get them open. You will be silent. In the empty chamber, his voice echoed. The edge of it sawed against my temper like a dull knife. And you love her still, you hateful old bastard. I stepped forward, leaving my knife on the floor. I did not trust myself with it anymore. I moved toward my grandfather's high-backed knot throne, and he drew himself up, perhaps in anger, perhaps in fear. You love her and mourn her. It's your own fault, and you mourn her, and you want her back, don't you? But if he Tempest is listening... If he cares at all about order and righteousness or any of the things the priests say, then I pray to him now that you keep loving her. That way, you'll feel her loss the way I do. You'll feel that agony until you die, and I pray that's a long, long time from now. By this point, I stood before Dakarta, 
bent down, my hands on the armrests of his chair. I was close enough to see the color of his eyes at last. A blue, so pale that it was barely a color at all. He was a small, frail man now, whatever he'd been in his prime. If I blew hard, I might break his bones. But I did not touch him. Descartes did not deserve mere physical pain any more than he deserved a swift death. Such hate, he whispered. Then, to my shock, he smiled. It looked like a death rictus. Perhaps you are more like her than I thought. I stood up straight and told myself that I was not drawing back. Very well, said Descartes, as if we'd just exchanged pleasant small talk. We should get down to business, granddaughter. In seven days' time, on the night of the 14th, there will be a ball here in Skye. It will be in your honor to celebrate your elevation to air, and some of the most noteworthy citizens of the world will join us as guests. Is there anyone in particular you'd like invited? I stared at him and heard an entirely different conversation. In seven days, the most noteworthy citizens in the world will gather to watch you die. Every mote of intuition in my body understood. The succession ceremony. His question hovered unanswered in the air between us. No, I said softly. No one. Descartes inclined his head. Then you are dismissed, granddaughter. I stared at him for a long moment. I might never again have the chance to speak with him like this, in private. He had not told me why he'd killed my mother, but there were other secrets that he might be willing to divulge. He might even know the secret of how I might save myself. But in the silence, I could think of no questions to ask, no way to get at those secrets. So at last I picked up my knife and walked out of the room, and tried not to feel a sense of shame as the guards closed the door behind me. This turned out to be the start of a very bad night. I stepped inside my apartment and found that I had visitors. Kurue had appropriated the chair where she sat with her fingers steepled, a hard look in her eyes. Sia, perched on the edge of my parlor's couch, sat with his knees drawn up and his eyes downcast. Jacarne stood sentinel near the window, impassive as ever. Nahadoth. I felt his presence behind me an instant before he put his hand through my chest. Tell me, he said into my ear, why I should not kill you. I stared at the hand through my chest. There was no blood, and as far as I could tell, there was no wound. I fumbled for his hand and found that it was immaterial, like a shadow. My fingers passed through his flesh and waggled in the translucence of his fist. It did not hurt exactly, but it felt as though I'd plunged my fingers into an icy stream. There was a deep, aching coldness between my breasts. He could withdraw his hand and tear out my heart. He could leave his hand in place, but make it tangible and kill me as surely as if he'd punched through blood and bone. Nahadoth, Kurue said in a warning tone. Sia jumped up and came to my side, his eyes wide and frightened. Please don't kill her. Please. She's one of them, he hissed in my ear. His breath was cold as well making the flesh of my neck prickle in goosebumps. 
Just another era, Mary, convinced of her own superiority. We made her see her, and she dares to command us? She has no right to carry my sister's soul. His hand curled into a claw, and suddenly I realized it was not my flesh that he meant to damage. Your body has grown used to containing two souls, Jacarn had said. It might not survive having only one again. But at that realization, completely to my own surprise, I burst into laughter. Do it, I said. I could hardly breathe for laughing, though that might have been some effect of Nahadoth's hand. I never wanted this thing in me in the first place. If you want it, take it. Yena, Sia clutched my arm. That could kill you. What difference does it make? You want to kill me anyway. So does Dakarta. He's got it all planned seven days from now. My only real choice lies in how I die. This is as good as any other method, isn't it? Let's find out, Nahadoth said. Kurue set forward. Wait, what did she? Nahadoth drew his hand back. It seemed to take effort. The arm moved through my flesh slowly, as if through clay. I could not be more certain because I was shrieking at the top of my lungs. Instinctively, I lunged forward, trying to escape the pain. And in retrospect, this made things worse. But I could not think, all my reason having been subsumed by agony. It felt as though I was being torn apart, as, of course, I was. But then something happened. Above, a sky out of nightmare. I could not say if it was day or night. Both sun and moon were visible, but it was hard to say which was which. The moon was huge and cancerously yellow. The sun was a bloody distortion, nowhere near round. There was a single cloud in the sky, and it was black. Not dark gray with rain, but black, like a drifting hole in the sky. And then I realized it was a hole, because something fell through. Tiny figures, struggling. One of them was white and blazing, the other black and smoking as they tumbled. I could see fire and hear cracks like thunder all around them. They fell and fell and smashed into the earth nearby. The ground shook. A great cloud of dust and debris kicked up from the impact. Nothing human could have survived such a fall. But I knew they were not. I ran. All around me were bodies, not dead. I understood with the certainty of a dream, but dying. The grass was dry and desiccated, crackling beneath my bare feet. Enifa was dead. Everything was dying. Leaves fell around me like heavy snow. Ahead, just through the trees. Is this what you want? Is it? Inhuman fury in that voice, echoing through the forest shadows. Following it came a scream of such agony as I have never imagined. I ran through the trees and stopped at the edge of a crater and saw. Oh, goddess, I saw. Yana! A hand slapped my face lightly. Yana! My eyes were open. I blinked because they were dry. I was on my knees on the floor. Sia crouched before me, his eyes wide with concern. Kurue and Jacarn were watching too. Kurue looking worried and Jacarn soldier still. I did not think. I swung around and looked at Nahadoth, 
who stood with one hand, the one that had been in my body still raised. He stared down at me, and I realized he somehow knew what I had seen. I don't understand, Kurure rose from the desk chair, her hand on the chair's back tightened. It's been twenty years! The soul should be able to survive extraction by now. No one has ever put a god's soul into a mortal, said Jacarn. We knew there was a risk. Not of this, Kurue pointed at me almost accusingly. Will the soul even be usable now, contaminated with this mortal filth? Be silent, Sia snapped, whipping around to glare at her. His voice dropped suddenly, a young man's again. Instant puberty. How dare you! I have told you time and again, mortals are as much Enifa's creation as we ourselves. Leftovers, Kurue retorted. Weak and cowardly and too stupid to look beyond themselves for more than five minutes. Yet you and Naha will insist on putting your trust in them. Sia rolled his eyes. Oh, please. Tell me, Kurue, which of your proud, God-only plans has gotten us free? Kurue turned away in resentful silence. I barely saw all this. Nahadoth and I were still staring at each other. Yena, Sia's small, soft hand touched my cheek, coaxing my head around to face him. His voice had returned to a childish treble. Are you all right? What happened? I asked. We're not certain. I sighed and pulled away from him, trying to get to my feet. My body felt hollowed out, stuffed with cotton. I slipped and settled onto my knees again and cursed. Yena, if you're going to lie to me again, don't bother. A muscle worked in Sia's jaw. He glanced at his siblings. It's true, Yena, we aren't certain. But for some reason, Enifa's soul has not healed as much as we hoped it would in the time since we put it in you. It's whole. And here he glanced at Kudere significantly. Enough to serve its purpose, but it's very fragile, too fragile to be drawn out safely. Safely for the soul, he meant, not for me. I shook my head, too tired to laugh. No telling how much damage has been done, Kurue muttered, turning away to pace the room's small confines. An unused limb withers, Jacarn said softly. She had her own soul, and no need for another. Which I would happily have told you, I thought sourly, if I'd been able to protest at the time. But what in the maelstrom did all this mean for me? That the Enifada would make no further attempt to draw the soul from my body? Good, since I had no desire to experience that pain ever again. But it also meant that they were committed to their plan now, because they couldn't get the thing out of me otherwise. Was that, then, why I had all these strange dreams and visions? Because a goddess's soul had begun to rot inside me? Demons in darkness. Like a compass needle seeking north, I swung back around to look at Nahadoth. He turned away. What did you say earlier? Kurue suddenly demanded. About Jakarta. That particular concern seemed a million miles away. I pulled myself back to it, the here and now, and tried to push from my mind that terrible sky and the image of shining hands gripping and twisting flesh. Takarta is throwing a ball in my honor, I replied, in one week, to celebrate my designation as one of the possible heirs. I shook my head. Who knows? Maybe it's just a ball. The Enifada looked at each other. 
So soon, murmured Sia, frowning. I had no idea he would do it this soon. Kurue nodded to herself. Canny old bastard. He'll probably have the ceremony at dawn the morning after. Could this mean he's discovered what we've done? asked Jakarn. No, Kurure said, looking at me, or she'd be dead and the soul would already be in Tempest's hands. I shuddered at the thought and finally pushed myself to my feet. I did not turn to Nahadoth again. Are you done being angry with me? I asked, brushing wrinkles out of my skirt. I think we have unfinished business.